0: 11, um, and we're going to start verses 1 through 4. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from its sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Verses 11, 12 through 15. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Verses 21 through 23. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one, I am talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Verses 30 through 31. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he is who blessed, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Chapter 12, one. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Verses 7 through 10. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Sarah. That was
2: a lot. And uh, and you're welcome, church family, for not having to stand to read that entire section. Let's pray. God, thank you for your, um, your life-giving word. God, we thank you um, for the gift of Jesus, the living word, uh, who came and rescued us out of the miry clay and set our feet on firm ground. God, we thank you that, um, that you are, in fact, worthy of all praise, and honor and glory, that you are uh, worthy of us uh, giving our entire lives to you. Um, Not that we might gain anything, but because we already possess everything in Christ Jesus. And Lord, thank you for, um, thank you for country. Uh, Thank you for um, all that we enjoy in this country. all the wisdom that you gave uh, men and women over the years to, uh, to craft this Constitution. And uh, we're just grateful that in your providence we, uh, we live here. Yet, God, we know that we are not uh, a chosen nation or a chosen people. We know that um, all those who have been saved by grace, uh, that have been gathered, the nations that have been gathered, um, are your chosen people. And God, I pray that you would just give us a, a sober look, and that we would boast more in you, than we do boast in this country. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first, and that you love us more. And God's people said, "Amen." Good morning. Good to see you. Happy, happy Sunday. Happy Fourth of July. Um, we've titled this sermon. I've titled this sermon the Christian boast, and. Um, you know, God's Word has, um, has one original authoritative intent. It's written by an author with a personality that has been carried along or inspired by the Spirit of God. And it was written for a particular audience with a, that was going through a particular circumstance. So that's truth. Um, at the same time, God has given us the Word. It, it's a timeless truth for all people. And um and there's different applications. And so um you know when I you know after last Sunday and then took the day off on Monday and I started kind of digging into the passage again on Tuesday morning, I'm going, wow god, this is a lot. <laughs> um and so we are much of this we're gonna we're gonna fly over to ten thousand feet, and then we're gonna dip down at, at times and do a, a, a ground level check. Uh, but we're not gonna go through verse by verse. Um The Christian boast. Um, On this 4th of July um, 1776, whatever that math is, on this particular birthday of the founding of the United States of America we celebrate it and we boast in the flag and we boast of our freedom and our founding fathers that made all of it possible. And this is a good boasting at some level. A proper kind of patriotism is deeply virtuous, as C.S. Lewis said in his book The Four Loves. But our ultimate boast should not be in the flag. Our ultimate boast should not be in our founding fathers or our constitution. Our ultimate boast is in our Heavenly Father who graciously and providentially determined for you and me to be born in this country. Our boast is in God. Our job as Christians in this country is actually to renounce our power and renounce our rights and to live out the great commission while giving heed to the first and second commandment, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor like ourselves. Country As good as it is, and kingdom, God's kingdom, aren't even on the same plane. They're not even in the same conversation. That kingdom is established through weakness, and through death, and through ultimately resurrection. And that being ones who have been brought into God's kingdom, we get to enjoy many of God's good gifts,
1: which includes country and people, that we boast in
2: our good and gracious and loving and sovereign God.
1: In our boasting
2: today, I pray that we would acknowledge our weakness, that we would boast in our weakness, as Paul is going to tell us, so that the power of Christ, not country, would rest upon us when the power of country and other good gifts rest upon us we can become distracted and aggravated by a loss of control or a loss of perceived power that causes us to keep our eyes on idols small g gods that we wrongly think will bring us liberty and happy happiness and justice for all and there's only one person that can bring us ultimate liberty and that too, can bring us ultimate happiness And that can bring justice for all who put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness for their sins. Just a high level review, just a paragraph. Paul is challenging the unrepentant minority in Corinth. He's writing from Ephesus and he's challenging the unrepentant minority in the church that he birthed and he loves to believe the gospel that he preached and that they once received. As we talked about last week, Paul is a missionary. His job is to go into cities and regions where the name of Jesus has not been named yet and to evangelize. To, to, to let people know that there is a God who created them to be loved. But his final goal is not evangelism. His final goal is not baptism. It's not just seeing people come to Christ. He wants people that have professed faith in Jesus to, um, to be a part of a healthy church where they are resting in God's grace and power. Resting in God's grace and power, letting God's grace and power rest upon them while living out the Great Commission and living out the First and Second Great Commandments. This minority that he's uh, writing to, many of the people in the church have repented, and he's writing to this minority in Corinth who have been duped. That they've, been, they've, been, um, they've been tricked by false teachers who have many worldly strengths. These are teachers that, that you and I might follow. They're articulate, they have the right pedigree, the right heritage, the right degrees, the right education, yet they teach a different gospel, they teach a different Jesus, they teach a different spirit. So Paul appeals to the unrepentant minority to believe Jesus and believe the gospel that he preached and to repent. So today we're going to be reminded of who and what we should boast in. And we, are, we, we, we boast rightly by renouncing all forms of worldly power and idols while allowing the power of God to rest upon us. Chapter 11, Verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read 1 through 4. We're not going to read most of the scripture, but I want to read this to start us off. I wish, church, that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin of Christ, pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere, in pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you seem to put up with it readily enough. One of the most beautiful pictures of intimacy in the Bible is the metaphor that Christians have been betrothed to Jesus. Revelation 19, 7-9 tells us that we await, Christians await the consummate marriage celebration when our bridegroom returns, when Jesus returns to, to gather us in once and for all. In the meantime, he's given us the Holy Spirit as a promise that Jesus will remain sincerely and purely devoted to his betrothed forever. And that with Jesus and his beloved, there is no death do us part. Paul feels a divine jealousy for these believers in the same way a father who has given his daughter to be married wants her to be sincerely and purely devoted to her future husband. Paul is concerned that the betrothed minority are being led astray by the super apostles in the same way that Eve was deserved, uh excuse me, was deceived by the serpent they're becoming purely they're they're becoming purely and sincerely devoted to finding happiness and fulfillment and contentment in other gods little g Eve's god in the garden was wisdom godlike wisdom at any cost wisdom's not bad but 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 pursuing wisdom at any cost um is a sin she thought that she could gain godlike wisdom by eating the forbidden fruit, the fruit that God forbid her and Adam to eat.
1: The Bible calls this what? Idolatry. It's the opposite. Idolatry is the opposite of trusting God.
2: Whatever we look to as the ultimate power capable of giving our lives meaning and fulfillment is an idol. It's our God. And we all have them. Martin Luther expresses idolatry this way. He says A God is that to which we look for all good and where we resort for help in every time of need. That's who God is, big G. To have a God is simply to trust and believe in one with our whole heart. The confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Whatever your heart um, clings to and confides in, that is really your God. God's people then, God's people throughout all of history, God's people now, today um, too easily put up with another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit. The true Jesus is not a genie in the bottle. But He's one whom we can trust, even if our circumstances don't change. We can trust Him in all of our circumstances. That's the true Jesus. The true gospel isn't good news that lets us live however we want. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just to set us free from the, uh, the penalty of sin. It's to, it's to call us into a new life. It transforms power hungry people into humble servants who exalt other people. The true spirit doesn't indwell us to give us new experiences and new revelations, as some would have us think. The spirit empowers us to humble ourselves and to live for the glory of God and for the good of others. That's the true spirit. In verses 5 through 6, Paul writes that he is in in fact an unimpressive speaker. You see, one of the accusations that the false apostles made um, is that Paul is an inadequate speaker. He's he's not impressive. But Paul says in verses 5 and 6 that he is skilled in the truth as they've seen. So if I'm skilled in knowledge and truth he says, listen up, verses 7 through 15. Paul now will contrast a true minister of the gospel with a false minister of the gospel. Paul came to Corinth to bring the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ and he didn't want to be a burden on them. He didn't want to be a burden on those he reached. He wanted to present the gospel free of charge, if you will. So he never asked for money. Even when, he was, even when he was out of money, he didn't ask the people in Corinth. He had support from a poor church in Macedonia. And then he also made a living, as we know in Acts chapter 18, by making tents, which is a blue-collar job. And in that culture, if your work had any value at all, you got paid. If you didn't get paid for your work, your, your work must not, be, must not be of any value. So as an apostle, he didn't get paid, so they deemed that his apostleship was false. And also in that culture, manual labor like tent making was looked down upon by the Jewish elite. So apostles used Paul's humility to not receive money, and they turned it against him. They, they turned the church against him. So Paul sarcastically asks a question in 11.7 to this deceived minority. He asks, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? He humbled himself so they could be exalted or lifted up out of their sin or idolatry. This is the way of the cross. This is the way to be exalted. In winning the church back to a sincere and pure devotion to Christ he needed to undermine the lies of the false teachers that they, that they are equal or superior to Paul. He wanted to undermine that falsity. And we need to be careful here. Because what Paul isn't necessarily giving us an example to just like call out people publicly. In our culture today in particular there's way too much public slamming. There's way too much uh, public judgment, calling people out. But Paul gives good reason to publicly correct others. It's when church leaders lead their flock to the sin of idolatry. And I might say that there's a lot of that that's been going on the last couple of years. Where leaders who are to be preaching the word of God are causing people to to be fearful and to protest things that are of secondary and tertiary importance. In 2 Corinthians 11:13 through 15, Paul calls out these false teachers. He says, "For such men are false apostles, they're deceitful workmen, they're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ." And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also. He's calling these false apostles servants of Satan. If they disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. These were deceitful workmen with impure motives and a version of the truth that is twisted. They preach a version of the gospel that teaches people to stand up for their rights rather than laying down our rights. You see, as Christians, we have no rights And I'm not saying that we can't exercise um, our rights as Americans, but as Christians we have no rights. And let's not confuse those two. These deceitful workmen who stand up for their rights and encourage the flock to stand up for their rights rather than laying down their rights came not to be served, came not to serve, excuse me, but to be served. False teachers bait God's people in the same way that Satan deceived Adam and Eve. Satan deceptively promised Eve a special knowledge that would allow her to become like God. And in the same manner these false
1: teachers disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. In the same way that Satan disguises
2: himself as an angel of light. Think about that. He says that these false teachers are disguising themselves as apostles of Christ in the same way that Satan disguised himself as an angel
1: of light. What what picture comes to mind when you think of angel of light? Attractive? Illuminating? But what he's saying is that they're false, that they come with a cover
2: that looks um, enticing. And Satan tempts the church today with the seductive trap of holding on to our perceived rights and power at the expense of other people. He tempts us to love ourselves and build our own kingdom at the expense of loving our neighbor and laying down our lives for the sake of others.
1: He convinces us to fight for our freedoms rather than fighting
2: to free others. From the coming pain of judgment, the Great Commission, and the temporary pain of marginalization. We're to fight for others with the gospel of Jesus Christ, both declaring
1: the gospel and
2: demonstrating the gospel. Christ's self-giving love leads us to live this kind of paradoxical life. We see this in Philippians chapter 2. Right, that, that Jesus is not only our Savior, but He's our example. That Jesus did not consider equality with, some, with God something to be grasped. What that means is that He emptied Himself of
1: all of His rights, He became human. He lived a marginalized life, a weak life. He was tempted in every way, yet He did not sin. That the way to be an exalted, the way to exalt others is through humility. It's by going low. These false teachers, Paul says,
2: who were workers of iniquity, disguised themselves as servants
1: of righteousness. In reality, they were servants of self-righteousness. They stood on
2: a platform of power and protecting their rights with little concern for those who are not like them. They preached a compelling message of building and maintaining our kingdom. And that appeals to my flesh and that appeals to your flesh.
1: But our job as Christians is not to build our kingdom. is to engage and to yield to the Spirit of God, and to be agents of Jesus building His kingdom. On the other hand, Paul was a servant of the new covenant
2: that produces righteousness by way of a new identity that produces a new way of living. You see, the the way to, um, to change culture in the church, in the community, in the nation, in the world. It's not for standing up for rights,
1: not that that's always bad. It's not to put down laws, not that those are always bad. But it's by living out our new identity
2: and loving others as we have been loved. It's an upside down way of life that says the way up is going low first. And these men, these false teachers who exploited weak Christians were not servants of righteousness. They stood on a platform of preserving their rights rather than laying down their lives. True servants of righteousness are compelled by the love of Christ to pick up our cross and humbly die to our perceived rights. Servants of righteousness live out um, live out. Uh, With no compromise, the first and second commandment. Have you read the Sermon on the Mount lately? Three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Amazing section of Scripture. As I was reading it, um, I was reminded of what it means to be blessed. We want God's blessing on this country. We want God's blessing in our life. What's the pathway to blessing? What does it even mean to be blessed? So at the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount he unpacks the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are blessing or happiness. He actually tells Christians, um, his followers on how to be blessed. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount isn't an instruction manual for winning God's favor. It describes how God wants those to live who have already been transformed by His grace. So this is for us, church. Matthew 5. And Jesus opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you and falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is greater in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before them. You want to be blessed? I want you to be blessed. I want this um, nation to be blessed. I want this church to be blessed. And the pathway to blessedness is first through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then it's living it out. It's going low so that others can be raised up,
1: it's going low so that the name of Jesus can be raised up. At the end of the sermon,
2: In chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, I'm struck with Jesus' final words. First, He he starts it off with how to be happy. And then at the end, He has this stark warning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I
1: declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The path to exaltation of others and the glory of God. And our own rising up is through humility, going low. In verse eleven, uh, chapter
2: chapter eleven, verse one, Paul said, "I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me." And now, in back in ten seventeen, he had proclaimed, "Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord." So, like Paul's going, like I'm going to start boasting, but before that, he said, "Let those who boast boast in the Lord." He seems to contract himself, uh, contradict himself. It's only for a couple of written paragraphs. And he knows that his boasting is not boastworthy, and it's ultimately foolish. Um, our boasting in, in anything, like, and I want to be careful here, like, like our, when we have birthdays at the Hardy household, we go around the table, and we tell people what we appreciate about them. There's a certain goodness in recognizing goodness in other people. But at the end of the day, we talk about I see God's grace in you by this and this in this. So even Paul's boasting is ultimately going to point not to himself but to the one who has given him good gifts. But Paul he's going to boast for the purpose of not exalting himself but to undermine the foolish worldly boasting of the apostles. These leaders, these false apostles are powerful, they're controlling And they proclaim a message of self-protection and building our own kingdom rather than calling Christians to lay down their lives, to lay down our reputation, to lay down our resources for the sake of Jesus and His kingdom. These leaders are authoritarian and they're aggressive. In chapter 11 verse 20 we're told that they make slaves, they devour, they take advantage, they put on airs and they'll strike you in the face. These are leaders of the church that Paul is talking about. These are ones that call themselves apostles. And Paul is most likely um, referring to the way these leaders treat their followers in an emotional, relational sense, not a physical sense. But they are the type of leaders who cannot be questioned, they cannot be challenged. And they are the type of leaders that will tell, tell, uh, tear others down in order to boost their own reputations and to boost their following. These are leaders who exist to be served and esteemed rather than to serve and lay down their lives. The true gospel and godly leadership comes in humility, I'll say it over and over again, and in weakness, not in pride or unapologetic power. We don't need more powerful leaders in the church. We need more humble
1: leaders in the church that call people to humility. For the true gospel and godly leadership comes in humility and weakness. In
2: verses 21b-23 through Paul reluctantly boasts now in his heritage to counter the boasting of these Jewish leaders in their heritage. He says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, he says, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. And after he levels the playing field according to his pedigree in a frustrated tone he writes in verse, 23, uh, yeah, verse 23a, verse um, twenty-three. are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors. And He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Um, I have far greater labors. You might expect him to continue boasting of all of his ministry success next. You should have saw the people lining up at the Jordan and me baptizing them. All the people that were lined up to hear my preaching. Um, have you seen my podcast? Do you know how many Instagram followers I have? Instead his next line is he starts to boast in what he has suffered in his zeal to reach them and other regions of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had no idea what it took for him to come to them. And he doesn't want to boast in that, but he wants, to, he wants them to know what he experienced because he loved them. Verses 23b-27, through he says, Far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and I was often near death. Five times I received 39 lashes minus one. And um, the Jewish law said that you could not whip somebody more than 40 times. It was against the law. And these beatings were um, by the synagogue for false Jewish teachers. So they would give 39 lashes just to make sure they didn't like miscount and do 41 and get arrested for beating them too much. Three times I was beaten with rods. This was the Gentile punishment for disturbing the peace. Once stoned, this was the most common form of execution in the Bible. Three times shipwrecked. I don't know about you. I'm on an airplane three times and it crashes three times. I'm taking the train next time. Like he keeps, he said three times shipwrecked. A night and a day adrift at sea. Frequent journeys in danger from rivers, from robbers, from my own people from Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, from false brothers, church people, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, without food, and cold and exposure. What he's boasting in here is that the, the super apostles have come and taken his pulpit.
1: And they're telling him that you got rights. You should go live however you want to live. You deserve happiness. Fight your way out of the trial. And Paul says, I came to you in weakness. I came to you
2: through suffering. Because I was so zealous to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. And he doubles down on his pain and on his sacrifice in verse 28. He says, and apart from other things, there is daily Pressure on me of my anxiety for all the for all the churches. In the verse 29, he describes the anxiety with two questions: Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? Paul compassionately identifies with Christians who are weak. These are
1: young Christians. They're being taken advantage of, and they've been made to fall. It says.
2: who is made to fall. in sin, my sin is is my fault. Your sin is your fault. Um, Your sin is never the other person's fault. But false teachers, teachers are held at a higher, um, that we we need to teach the truth. Um, We cannot lead you to sin and to false thinking, to idolatry. So he is, he is identifying with these false Christians who are weak and have been made to fall by these false teachers. And here he describes what he meant in, in verse 21b when he says he was a better servant of Christ than the most powerful uh, false apostles. He compassionately identifies with the weak in the church who are being oppressed and misled and exploited by the false teachers. He's concerned that they are weak or being made to fall. And, and secondly he's indignant. You know what indignant means? He's burning with anger. He is pissed off. I mean, he's not going to stand by while these false teachers um, dupe and lead astray uh, the the people that he loves. Jesus gave a warning to false teachers like this in Mark 9 and Luke 17. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin don't do that anymore? Nope. Nope. It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. And in Luke he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Serious words for false teachers who twist God's word and promote false revelations and lead people into idolatry. And in verses 30-31 Paul brings a, to a climax his full speech as it's called saying that if I must boast I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Paul starts with an odd example of boasting in his weakness in 32-33. At Damascus the governor under King Eritas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. In that time, one of the highest Roman military honors was something called the wall crown or the Corona Moralis, And it was given to the soldier when when the Romans um, stormed the enemy city. Uh, The first one to climb the wall and to make it into the enemy city was given the Corona Moralis. I don't think that's a Mexican drink. In contrast to that achievement that was greatly celebrated in that culture, Paul described himself in a self-deprecating way in order to show his weakness in God's power. He didn't scale a wall to conquer a city. He didn't even stay in the city to fight or argue. He hid in a basket. He was let down through a window so he could escape those who wanted to seize him. That he escaped in weakness so that the power of God could continue through him to all the nations. It's ironical, that it's, it's, it's ironical that the city of Damascus, where Paul was going to arrest and persecute Christians, was also the scene of this less than memorable attempt to snuff out his gospel witness. The attempt to silence him was fruitless. In the same way that his attempt to destroy the church was fruitless, it reminds us of Jesus' words, that I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail, that there's nothing that will stop the gospel of Jesus Christ." In verses chapter 12, verse one, Paul says, "I must go on boasting. But there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul reluctantly continues to boast, and this time about a supernatural encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I explained this more in more detail last night, and it wasn't worth it because it wasn't even it wasn't enough time. So there's a lot to study in uh, verses two through four, and I would encourage you to study if you want to. Let me read it. I know a man, Paul says, in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Let me just pause right there for a minute. Are you comfortable not having answers?
1: Who said no? I like answers. Rest in this, that whatever questions you have,
2: God knows. And continue to cry out to him. And he will give you the answer. And and he heard things that cannot be told, that man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but uh, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. As we're going to see in the following verses, this man is Paul. And I don't know why Paul refers to himself in the third person other than to show his humility and not to boast in himself. But he can't trick us. He tells us you know, in the next couple of sentences that it's him. We don't have time to unpack the particulars of this revelation, but if you want more I'd suggest that you study on your own. But here is the point that I believe that Paul wants his readers to take away. He's trying to invalidate the apostleship of the false apostles and validate his and he's also telling his readers what, what is and isn't boastworthy as we're going to see shortly. And signs and wonders... Revelations and experiences that are supernatural and extra-biblical may or may not happen. But when they
1: do happen, they're not boastworthy. We don't boast in that. Verse 7. So
2: to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, the verses 2 through 4. A thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. 3 times i pleaded with the lord about this that i sh- that it should leave me. paul encountered the living god and in a revelation that very few if any will ever experience. this is not normative and it should not be sought out by christians. paul didn't
1: seek it out. he was caught up, he was taken as a result of the revelation, as a result of of God's
2: revelation to Paul, God in his kindness gave Paul a severe trial that he described as a thorn in the flesh. Yes, I said God in his kindness gave Paul a severe trial or thorn in his flesh. And we don't know what Paul's thorn is. It's something else that as Christians like we want to know. There's all kinds of speculation, but why is it important? We know that Paul, it was was a stake that brought him much pain. And it could have been emotional like depression. It could have been blindness. It
1: could have been a speech impediment. But it was a hard trial for Paul. And we know that it was given to him by God. It was given to him by God to keep him from being conceited.
2: What was more valuable? Here's a question. What was more valuable
1: and boastworthy to Paul? The revelation or the thorn? From this text, we'd have to say the thorn, the trial, was more boastworthy. Because
2: it caused Paul to boast in his weakness so that the power and the grace of God would rest upon him.
1: And to take it further, Paul pleaded with the Lord three times to remove it from him. I know many of you have been in this place. Some of you are in this place. And we should cry out to God to remove it. It hurt Paul that he wanted it out. Of course he wants the trial to go away.
2: Jesus wanted it to go away in the garden. Jesus said, God, if it be your will, remove this cup from me. The cup of wrath that he was going to drink that all of humanity deserved. That he, he begged the Lord, the
1: Father, to take it away, but he said, not my will be done, but what? Yours. God in his kindness and in his providence didn't give Paul
2: relief, divine relief from the trial, but instead he gave Paul a divine message. Paul was not able to boast in healing. And praise God if we're able to boast in healing, not in the healing power of an individual, but in the healing power of a God who's going to heal all things once and for all in the new heavens, in the new earth. We don't boast in our healing, but we boast in Him. But Paul was not able to boast in a healing but he boasted in something even greater, verses 8 through 10. God said to him, Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, in trial. Remember last week we talked about power, it's God's ability. That my grace is sufficient for you, for my my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What we need, Christian, is not new revelation or experiences. What we need is not less trials. Because Jesus said, in this world there will be trials, there will be trouble, but we can take heart because He's overcome the world. Now we should never pray for trials for one another. But I fear that we try too hard to get out of the trial and we
1: miss soaking in the grace and power of God. We need the everlasting
2: and all sufficient grace and power of Jesus to carry us through. And you know what? You have it. You have it, that you have been saved by grace and you're carried along by grace. And it's when we are on our knees crying out that, "Lord, would you remove this cup from me? Would you remove this trial? It's where we experience His power resting upon us. It's when we experience His nearness. That prayer isn't so much about um, uh, God giving us what we ask for, but it's meeting us in our time of need. And does He give us what we ask for? Absolutely at times. He's a good daddy who gives good
1: gifts. And sometimes He gives the gifts that we're asking for. Remember one time, just a side note, Mitch is upstairs. <laughs> this came
2: to mind, not my notes, son. There was a couple of things that Mitch asked for his birthday. He was probably eight years old, and we got him a bicycle instead. And he was not too impressed with the bicycle because he didn't get what he wanted for Christmas. And we are
1: all like that. That God gives us what we need, not always what we want.
2: We experience His power in weakness. We don't experience His power in fighting and protesting. We experience His power in weakness, in in humbly trusting and surrendering to the one who will bear all of our burdens. Galatians 2.20, For I've been crucified with Christ. You know it. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In the life, I now live in the flesh. I live in this world. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself
1: up for me. And we're going to finish with verse 10. For the sake of Christ then I'm content with weaknesses insults, hardships persecutions and calamities for when I'm weak, what? I'm strong. Do you have a content boasting in your weaknesses this morning?
2: Are you experiencing His grace and power today?
1: Is there a trial in your life that you would like to have removed? Call out to Him.
2: And know that even if He doesn't remove it, it doesn't mean He cares for you any less. He's a good, loving, and providential God. Cry out to Him. It's where we experience His grace and His power. Our prayers
1: are more about relationship and intimacy with God rather than it is getting what we want.
2: He brings us trials so that we can trust Him in deeper ways, that we can know Him in more
1: intimate ways. And I don't know why you're experiencing what you're experiencing. But I'm here to say that our God is a good God. That He's a loving God. And that He wants you and me to trust Him
2: in all things. And not to trust the things of this world for our happiness our contentment, our identity, and our sufficiency. If you are in the midst of a trial right now, and you are suffering it alone, any kind of trial, talk to me. Talk to other people in this body. Let us pray with you. Let us plead with you that our good and loving Father would remove the thorn. And that while we're awaiting the removal of that thorn, whether it be now or when he returns, that we would find great contentment in the midst of our weaknesses.
1: Let's pray. God, thank you for your, the truth of your word. Thank you, God, for the truth that um, Thank you that you do give us more than we
2: can handle. Whoever coined the phrase that God doesn't give you more than you can handle is completely deceived. God, thank you that you give us more than we can handle so that we can lean in
1: to you so that your power and grace can rest upon us.
2: And God, we thank you that um, one day you will make all things new,
1: that um, there'd be no more suffering, no more sin, no more death. And God, I pray that you would help
2: us live lives in submission to you, Lord, that we would live lives in submission to you where we are continually laying down our perceived rights, our perceived right to be treated a certain way. To have a certain freedom. But to understand that the reality is that what we truly deserve is an eternity separated from you. But in Christ, what we receive is an eternity in fellowship with you. So God, thank you for those promises. God, would you um, Continue to carry us along, as I know you will. You promised to carry us all the way through, through the peaks and the valleys. Help us keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfect of
1: our faith. In Jesus' name we pray.